0: So, Paul, you're, uh, you're, you're big into food. I have a question for you. Now,
1: do you have a position on drinking broth? It depends. I have opinions about this thing called bone broth and how it's really uh-huh. just stuck with a bunch of uh, woo wrapped around it. I don't, what is woo? Well, I think of woo like a, uh, I guess like a, I'm going to probably get myself into trouble, but like a chiropractor or a uh, homeopathic doctor or a... Uh,
0: mystical mystical yeah yeah that makes sense okay so so you think beef broth has a certain amount of
1: mysticism associated with it no bone broth bone broth oh okay okay bone bone broth is really just stock because stock is just bones that you boil in -hmm. water to make Mm -hmm. a delicious stock with Uh, and then you take that stock and you can either turn that into broth which is kind of like a Stock without really much in it, or you have a soup, which is when you actually add other things into it to make a sort of more wholesome, hearty thing. Okay, well,
0: this is delightfully more than I was expecting. So let, let's let's dive into this just a little bit, and then we'll get to the technical stuff. So, so broth, broth is is a superset
1: of stock and bone broth. Like broth is the whole collection of things. Yeah. So bo- bone broth is just uh, like a marketing term that people have added so they can sell it as part of a a diet that people will buy their like body transformation books over. Mm. It's not really a separate thing from regular broth or stock. Okay, okay.
0: Um, so it's, a they'll, it's, it's they'll,
1: a they'll argue that the process is different and they're uh-huh. nutrients out of the bones with extra vinegar and a bunch of other nonsense, but uh the science ain't there. I see, I
0: yeah. see. Okay, okay. So so the mysticism aside. Do you have, uh, is, is drinking broth, is that, is that okay? Is that a thing or is it just flavor? Like
1: what, uh, is a terrible idea? What do you think? If it's good enough for baby Yoda, it's good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> when, does, when does the soup become a stew? I think it's, it's a stew when there's more other stuff than there is soup. Oh, like when the particulate uh, water level is higher. Mm-hmm big chunks of
0: meat. I I think it's sort of like, I mean, I guess everyone says, (laughs) people say that the body is mostly made up of water, but we would not call the body water. There Mm -hmm. is like, it is more on the stew side, philosophically thinking. I guess it's
2: it's (laughs) pre-stew. Yeah, I guess I just figured it's when a fork comes into the equation, you're in stew territory. That's probably a good way to look at it. When you need to
1: upgrade from a fork a, a spoon to a fork and i don't think a spork quite counts
2: <laughs> well this isn't kentucky fried chicken so right sporks not welcome
0: that's good that's good well good i think i think we've covered the uh, the in, the formal <laughs> introductory part of the podcast where we uh, we talk about food or the weather so that's good so so paul why don't you introduce yourself yeah. uh my name is paul
1: <laughs> <laughs> what do you what do you, uh, what do, you do around here uh, I'm on the developer advocacy team at I guess now VMware, uh since the acquisition went through recently, uh previously Pivotal. Uh and I sort of focus on Kubernetes and other more slash DevOps uh things as opposed to uh squiggly lines and periods and equal signs mm. uh in Visual Studio Code or whatever we're using these days when we're writing code. Yeah. So I'm a developer advocate, but really I'm more of a ops advocate. Well, you know,
0: they they need advocating too. Yeah, that's what I always tell people is, is you do the ops stuff and the DevOps and of course the, the Kubernetes, Kubernetes. The kubes, the, the all of that yeah, stuff.
1: Yeah, the kube the, the is very needy, so we definitely have some kubernetes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so so I I, uh, I wanted to have you on to sort of kick off the year, talking about, about speaking of Kubernetes and operational stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I realized, well, you know, I know you well, but but I knew it would be especially fun because I, I watched that video you did in Warsaw a while back. Uh, <laughs> by a while back, I mean last month, uh, so long ago. Uh, it seems like a long time ago. But yeah, yeah, I, I have I hadn't seen you do the uh, the overall uh, Kubernetes arc uh, of everything, and and uh, it was very good. It was nice. Everything kind of fit together well, and uh, you know, you also got to do a speak in Warsaw, which I'm sure was fun. And I think I spoke in that, that same room. That's like in a big uh, university building somewhere. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, uh, so. We all have only a couple little news items that I wanted to go over, and just some pointers, and then and then we'll dive into uh, you know Paul's exploration. As Paul mentioned, I think it was uh, on December thirtieth, twenty nineteen, that uh, VMware finalized its acquisition of Pivotal. So we're all we're all VMware people. I think we all have VMware email addresses uh, as mm-hmm. well, which is very exciting. We'll have to uh, we'll have to trade with each other what they are. It's always fun when you join a large company to see what your email address ends up being. And uh, as you can imagine, I've as, as another thing, I've been doing a lot of uh, figuring out what's going on in VMware world. And I somehow I stumbled upon, I'll put a, a link to it in the show notes, which we post at um, pivotal.io slash podcast. Maybe it'll be another URL sometime in the future. But there's a good video from, I think it's like, uh, like VMware tech days that goes over what Project Pacific is. And like, I think there's a, there's, it's, for me, been one of the more mysterious sort of things that VMware has been doing in the Kubernetes space. But this thing finally, this thing, this video finally, I think, has a really good technical explanation of what's going on there, if you wanted to dive into it more. So I would refer to you to that. And I think it's from one of the project product managers. And then also, we and Forrester uh, released this thing called a uh, Total Economic Impact, or TEI, which mm-hmm. unfortunately... It's too bad they couldn't forget how to make it spell tie because you can't really you can't really like pronounce t. How would you pronounce that if you have? I can't think of a. I guess I guess Terry in French, but that's a T H E I. There's got to be some way you would tie. There, yeah, yeah. Anyhow, mm-hmm. that's a report that we have out. You can read, and uh, it goes over. I think I think if I remember, it's based on like five or six or eight or so customers uh, that Forrester interviewed. Something in that area, because we did one last year, or what they did one last year, and uh, it kind of goes over the um, the improvements that you get, the return on investment and productivity and stuff, and it's fun reading through. It's always nice to have uh, aggregated numbers like that.
2: Yeah, it's fairly realistic. I mean, they kind of create an aggregate customer out of all the interviews and talk about the general benefits you get, and it's real anecdotes. It's not made up stuff, so it's, it's actually a pretty useful read, as you say. So with that, <laughs> Paul, Kubernetes.
1: Kubernetes. Give us an overview. Wow, okay. An overview of <laughs> Kubernetes. Yep. And what is it? It's a thing what runs containers for you. See? That's a good start. This
0: is one of the conclusions. As, as as I was, you know, watching your your overview, watching yet another overview of Kubernetes, I was like, you know, as always, I complexify things too much. There's a slide you had where you're like, oh, it's really easy to run this on your laptop, and then here's a bunch of servers, and now you need to do that. And it it's right. sort of like it's after all these years. Uh, I I often forget that simple jump that like the whole point is like you need to run like thousands of these and Mm -hmm. you know, that seems like a hassle.
2: Have you changed your opinion? I mean, if we go back to the very beginning, why do people care about containers? I mean, we've been talking about it for years, but has your thinking evolved at all about even in the first place, like why containerize?
1: So, I mean, I think the value of containers, especially, you know, the, the canonical, you know, Docker image Mm -hmm. version of containers is, the ease of building and the ease of sharing. I think that kind of trumps most of the other things, especially now we have uh, a bunch of options around the lightweight VMs that behave like containers. Um, And I know, I mean, I think 12 months ago I kind of wrote a snarky blog post about the future of Kubernetes being lightweight VMs. Uh, And I still feel that there's a, strong place there um, because there's still a lot of angst and concern about uh, the real secure isolation of containers uh, and what that looks like in a multi-tenant world. And I think uh, it would be a lot of work to make a multi-tenant safe container hypervisor, whereas a uh, VM hypervisor is more or less multi-tenant safe from the outset and being able to, instead of having a bunch of servers with hypervisors with a container engine sort of all stacked up, being able to just have the Kubernetes control plane and a bunch of hypervisors, um, sorry, multiple Kubernetes control planes either, uh, sharing that pool of hypervisors uh, and sharing those resources from a infrastructure point of view, from a cloud provider point of view, Um, Even from a, you know, inside your data center, private cloud point of view, um, having that brings a lot more potential for um, higher density of, you know, more bin packing of your workloads. So, and and I think that bin packing side of things, the better density is probably the killer app there, more so than the um, the security and the multi tenancy. So, I still think we're going to see it go that way. Um, but I still think we're going to continue to see the that Dockerfile, um, Docker Hub type um, system for building and sharing.
2: But building and sharing for you are the yeah kind of the main things.
1: Yeah, so it'll still be effectively a container to you or an I, but it may be a lightweight VM when it's actually running somewhere, and that's going to be an, an implementation detail. that we don't even care
0: about. Yeah, that's a good way to start uh, wrapping our hands around the impossibly open-ended question of so Kubernetes, which is, as, so, so I, as, as you're saying, like the two valuable things that you get, the reason you do it is, is I guess, that building and sharing. I, I mean, is, is that, and, and what is the sharing part of it? Because I guess the building part is just like, it's easy to package up your software to run. <laughs>
1: basically, and, and it's, yeah. it's fast. And then yeah. what, so what's the sharing part? The sharing is the Docker push, Docker pull that you do to a, um, either the Docker hub up in the public or a private registry like Harbor, where it becomes very easy to say, here's my app, anyone can run it. And then uh, anyone can go, hey, I'm looking for Bob's WordPress image. There it is. I can grab it and run it without having to really think about it. I think that's the
2: difference, right? I mean, Kote, from you and I, we're all of us, we're all old people now. I mean, from the years ago of here's 20 set of instructions to get this thing up and running, i got to start this up, install this, mm-hmm. configure that, and hey, it's different than two weeks ago because something else changed because everything is packed together, right? Paul, well, I mean, at that point, me right. running out of my machine will be completely identical to you doing it because all the dependencies, all the config is literally wrapped up in one immutable thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, and if you, if you ever built um, VM images using a tool like... Uh Uh, packer Um, you know that packer is probably about the best you get and it's still quite hard right because you need to spend a lot of time figuring out which base os and then you're basically running either a big long script or you're running chef or puppet or something to build it all up then it's going to be packaged and it's going to be shipped up to your cloud provider etc and so that was uh quite a lot of work for just any anyone to do um for people that Building OSs isn't in their wheelhouse, uh, whereas with Docker and the the ability to build on top of other people's Docker images, now I can be like, well, I just need a Java image, and then I know how to put a jar in my you know Java image. So I only need to know the copy command in the Docker file versus knowing how to build an entire OS from using the Docker file. As
0: you were mentioning, you know, you got all your bin packing concerns, like sticking as many things in a uh, constrained space as possible, metaphorically speaking. And like how much, how much of like the container of the value from the container Kubernetes world do you think comes from that? Like, is that like a huge deal or is it just like a
1: fun side effect? I think it's a fun side effect and I'm not sure it's even as real as a lot of people think it is. Mm. Um, You know, there is definitely more overhead running VMs than there is running containers. Uh, But at the end of the day, most of the overhead is in whatever the application you're running is itself. uh, And you're not reducing that. So you might have a couple of percent here or there because of what the VM takes up. Um, But I don't think that, it's really that, you know, they used to talk, you know, tens of VMs or thousands of containers. I don't think that's real. Um, that Something like that might be real with serverless or, um, you know, Knative where you have like a container on demand based on like web traffic or something that might become more real, um, but you're making other sacrifices there. Mm. Uh, so I don't think the bin packing uh, Versus, versus VMs it is really uh, that uh, big a difference. Uh, and then, of course, Kubernetes uh, and its scheduler have its own way woes. Uh, Kubernetes doesn't really try and optimize the, the, the bin packing, so it will just distribute VM. Uh, it will distribute the containers to, say, the worker nodes that are there. If you create new worker nodes, it's not intelligent enough to redistribute them to more evenly fill those machines. And and so, you know, I don't, I think other systems probably have better bin packing. Um, Like I know uh, VMware uh, does a really good job of um, moving workloads around to optimize the hardware using uh, vMotion and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, the default Kubernetes schedulers don't do that. There's no reason you couldn't write your own scheduler to do that, but if you're at the point where you're rewriting your own Kubernetes scheduler, you've probably solved every other problem in computer science, including (laughs) DNS.
0: (laughs) So so that brings up another, another thing I'm always curious about. So tell me if I get this inaccurate just to like lay out a summary. So, you know, on your laptop, you build a, you put your junk in a container, your stuff. It's not junk. It's wonderful handcrafted things, some software you've written uh, and it's packaged in a container. And now, uh you know, your buddies can access it and do whatever you can run it as basically just a, an application that's containerized. I didn't really say very much there, but we'll move on. Uh And then you're like, ah, oh, but then also I want to run like, you know, uh, 500 instances of this. And it's like a multi-tier distributed application. So it's got all these different components running around. So I have like, 50 containerized things that I have to orchestrate running. So now I need a whole other system called Kubernetes. I need an orchestrator. And what Kubernetes will do is it'll let me specify like here's the I don't know what words people use for this but like if I were to draw a diagram of how all these 50 things are related and the dependencies that they have and which one what each one does, the architecture, uh here's what it looks like and here's kind of like I need something to go off and like place all of these on various computational things on the VMs running and make sure that they're in a state that I like. And, you know, uh, if there's drift from my desired configuration, like blow them away and restart them and then make sure that they can do the networking, talking with each other. Uh, and then maybe they also need some storage and, and it's sort of, you know, so Kubernetes does a lot of that stuff. However, yeah. is that a good, uh, a good summary from the get go? Like what did
1: I, uh, hand wave over? Yeah. I, I think so. I, I kind of like to think of Kubernetes as effectively an IaaS for containers. Um, when you think about any cloud, you're saying I want CPU, I want memory, I want disk, I want network, uh, and you're requesting the exact same things with Kubernetes, just for containers instead of VMs. Um, you mentioned describing your like your architecture. You don't really do that. You describe each individual piece. Mm. So you still need to keep your architecture in mind. Uh, It does blur when you get into service meshes where you do kind of start describing your architecture or you let your architecture um, uh, sort of self-describe itself just by a set of conventions
0: yeah no no the, the the good. That's exactly like the blurry line i'm I'm interested in, right? is like so so what what does Kubernetes not do <laughs> along those areas, right? like like because and and you brought up one thing that I think it doesn't do, which is basically like uh a service mesh, and and my you know a service mesh is basically like, I've got all these subcomponents and systems in my application, whatever that may be, and they need to work with each other. And the service mesh does, that's the outcome it achieves, basically, Uh, you know, being able to look up services and having all of them talk with each other and so forth and so on. And like, that's not part of Kubernetes, right? Or is it? Or how does that layer in? It's
1: a tough question. I think a lot of us aren't really sure where the demarcation should be. Uh, And Kubernetes has been very cautious about how much it takes on. Um, Because it does try and follow that, you know, do one thing and do it well. Uh, And you can see that through its architecture, um, through how it doesn't do a lot. And then it uses controllers to do a a lot of the uh, value-added stuff. Uh, And then things like Istio come along. There are a set of custom controllers that do even more advanced things. I think as we... Develop opinions that are strong that work well for everyone. They then start look at like moving towards being part of Kubernetes itself. All um, right. Certainly, anything that's like value adding on top of your application is generally outside of Kubernetes. Right. So Kubernetes is below your application. Um, Istio is kind of in between and above your application. Mm. Uh, And so I think that's definitely outside the purview of Kubernetes, Uh, especially say Istio. It's like actually modifying your application from the inside, right? Because it's putting Mm. these sidecars in and it's doing these weird network tricks to force your application to talk through those sidecars. So anything that's actually manipulating the behavior of your uh, application, A, should not be done by a platform that potentially someone else is running uh and also B, in my opinion, should be done with very thoughtful consideration. Uh because now your app doesn't behave the way you asked it to. And therefore, what what things is it you know, what strange obscure bugs could be introduced that might surprise us later on?
0: That I, I like that rule of thumb. I I like that rule of thumb that if if you're modifying how your application works it probably shouldn't be in the Kubernetes layer <laughs> like, and and probably being an operative word there that like, you know, maybe there's something that you would put in that layer, but like, it's likely that it's something else you you would add on top of it. Cause that's, that's, that's pretty clear about where the, uh, the cut line should be.
2: Yeah. When you do that, I mean, one thing I want to back up on Paul, cause you had mentioned, I like the IS for containers. I think that's a good thing. When Cote was pushing on kind of the architecture piece. I mean, it's still true that people say a container should be one process, right? You shouldn't be jamming a bunch of different, like a whole multi-tier architecture into a container, although you physically could, I guess. But that's still the rule of thumb, right? That you should be putting one process. You will have more components in your architecture than a traditional maybe three VMs representing each tier. Am I right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And actually, that's one of the smart things that Kubernetes did with the pod concept is the pod is your, like your workload, not your container, right? And so the pod can run more than one container. Uh, And so the pod basically brings up the actual uh, execution environment for your container. So it brings up the C groups, et cetera. uh, And then your various containers share those things. So they share the network namespace. They share the IP addresses. They share uh, uh, volumes. If you have volumes, Uh, And so that allows you if you need to have more than one container for your application. Uh, The canonical example, of course, is PHP applications where you have PHP FPM and you have NGINX, uh, and they're usually sharing a socket over a file system. Uh, And so you would run those in the same pod in different containers sharing a volume or sharing local host for communication.
2: But many architectures, you'd have multiple pods, right? In a traditional multi in yeah, app.
1: Yeah, exactly. So if you were, a, like, if we're WordPress, you might have PHP and Nginx in the one pod. But you certainly wouldn't put MySQL in that same pod because it's not part of that, um,
2: uh,
1: that piece of the architecture. It's not that, um, like, atomic scalable unit.
2: Um, and so that's important yeah, though, because as you said, yeah. right, you're, you're imposing your architecture still onto this system. It's not yes. doing it for you. So right. when someone looks at those primitives, they have to do this right, right? I can still make horrible mistakes in this layout no. And so how do I lay this out? And no, YAML is the language of, of love and of Kubernetes. So how am I using YAML? Yeah, pause for Paul to <laughs> smile. Uh how do you use that to lay out, I mean, lay it out for us, right? Like, oh, I'm an architect or I'm a developer. Now I've got a bunch of containers I'm ready to deploy. What's my next step? How do I think about those lines? How do I think about what goes in pods? How do I how do, I do this correctly?
1: Yeah, so you think of a pod as your, like, uh, canonical uh, unit of scale, right? So if you've got a traditional three-tier app, it's simple. You have three pods or, you know, three replica sets or three deployments, right? Um, Then uh, you have to connect them together. So you have services, and generally, if it's one pod talking another pod, you just have the default service which gives you a um, cluster IP, Uh, and that basically becomes the IP address that you would address a given pod. Uh, So you assign a service to a pod. So it's WordPress, the, 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 the pod, therefore... You have WordPress, the service, and that gets that IP address. And that IP address is accessible from anywhere in the cluster. And it also inherits a, a DNS name from uh, Kube DNS. So if it's called WordPress, you now have a DNS name called WordPress that any pod can access uh, on that name and get to your application. If it's a, repli- a replica set or a deployment where you have more than one copy, it load balances those for you. Um, And so you've got your WordPress, then you need your database. So you have uh, a WordPress service, you have a database service. Your database is probably called uh, database or WordPress-database. And so in your WordPress configuration, you can actually hard code uh, the the path to your database as WordPress-database because you you know that's what your service is always going to be called. Um, uh, And then... So that's how you get the WordPress and the uh, database talking. Uh, So now you have a working application, but you want someone outside to be able to access it. So the WordPress service, you need to elevate that to be either a node port, which gives you uh, an ephemeral port on your worker nodes that will uh, NAT through to it, or you use a service type of load balancer, which will actually configure a load balancer to balance it down. And that gives you a static IP and a sensible port of 80 and uh, the ability to then add DNS to it and have a general you know, purpose. This is how you access a website on the internet. Uh, and then you have a step further where you have a bunch of apps uh, working together and you might use an ingress controller, which lets you put those uh, layer seven rules about uh, which service should be communicated with based on like the URL path. Uh, and that sort of gives you your kind of one branch of an application. Obviously, WordPress is not a microservice, um, but uh, if you have a bunch of microservices, uh, they would talk to each other via those cluster IPs, uh, via their DNS, Um, uh, and so you're getting that that very rudimentary service discovery from DNS, Uh, and that's usually enough for a very basic set of microservices um, where there's not a lot of complication You know what everything is, and you can just run it. Uh, When you get to more complex scenarios, uh, that's when you need to look towards things like uh, service meshes where uh, you don't necessarily need to know the entire architecture um, for what's going on. Uh, You can kind of let the service mesh help you with more advanced uh, routing, more advanced uh, service discovery, and then you get some added things, like if you really want uh, TLS communication between each of your microservices, if you want cert-based authentication between your microservices, uh, you, can, you, you can do those things through a service mesh. Uh, obviously, there's a whole heap of considerations about latency if you're going to have some external process injecting uh, TLS communication on top of your application, but You know, those are all, those are all things. If you're at that point, you're probably thinking about those effects anyway. If not, well, you'll get woken up at 3am
2: every day. So, I mean, it seems like the two things you really have to grok in this is, is kind of the placement questions of like, where do I stick things? Because there's replicas, there's, there's tiering and then network connectivity. Like I, I feel like I have to know both of those things to be dangerous here. So in a traditional, I don't know, whether it's a startup or a big company, Mm-hmm. Who's doing these things? Like, maybe I'll be fired before the end of the podcast. But are developers supposed to use Kubernetes? Or realistically, am I should I stop when I built a container, and then some other mysterious person comes in and lays this stuff out right?
1: Yeah. Look, assuming you're not a brand new startup that has never computed before, you probably already have someone or something that's managing your infrastructure, right? So, whether you're an enterprise or a startup, someone is clicking around in the Amazon UI or someone is using CloudFormation or someone is using Terraform, whoever is doing that in your organization is probably the one that's going to be doing a lot of the work defining the Kubernetes resources. Um, I think it's not really something a developer should have to know, um, but in your org, it might be something you've decided that they should know because of the way you've structured yourself because you're targeting a specific um, you know, organization slash software architecture um, and you sort of Conway's lured yourself into a particular way of working. So, so
0: that, that like is a,
1: a, another favorite topic of mine
0: to, to contemplate in the Kubernetes world, which is like, you know, there's this notion of like, it's a platform for building platforms. And like, um, what
1: does that mean? Yeah, so I, ha- I, have, I have some opinions. So when you have uh, an IT group, an operations group, a DevOps group, you're either building a platform or you are the platform, right? You're, you, you can be a platform made out of meat that uh, Jira is your API or you can build a platform made out of Kubernetes or out of Amazon or out of whatever your uh, you know, vegetable of choice is and wrap some extra tools around that, You know, wrap some monitoring, some logging, Uh, some access control, uh, and then you have a platform, right, which is ideally self-service. So the goal is to get self-service application deployment to your developers, and that could be through a real API. It could be through uh, something Cloud Foundry-ish. It could be through something doing uh, GitOps. So it could be a combination of Concourse and Spinnaker, But the goal is to get to that self-service to your app devs without them having to do a bunch of things that require large portions of their brain, right? Because you want large portions of their brain focused on writing software that doesn't suck, right? I guess the cut line, the thing
0: is that like, as we were kind of discussing, like, so you get Kubernetes up and running. And you still have to like figure out how you're going to deploy and manage and specify everything. Right. There's not
1: like, it's, it's not so self-service as, as one would assume. No. And and like backing up even more than that, you need to figure out how to actually build and share your images. Right. You you don't Mm. get a build service with Kubernetes. You don't get a image registry with Kubernetes. So, you know, you could, if you were small and, uh, able to do so, you could use GitHub and GitHub Actions and uh, Docker registry and cover those things. But most of us can't do those things for any number of reasons. So we build things that look like those things uh, and uh, enable those for our developers.
0: And, and so, you know, I was, I was reminded of this when you're going over, like, uh, you need to add in a service mesh, right? So it, it would seem like a service mesh would be a platform that you build on top of this platform. Like, is that, is that yeah. maybe not complete, but it's an example of like, you use the, uh, I think a word Kubernetes people use a lot is like, there's primitives that are defined, but mm-hmm. you, you use these primitives to say like, all right, Hey primitives, here's how you can organize yourself into a civilized way of doing service management. And uh, mm-hmm. it's kind of a, a, an opinion of that. And then, yeah I guess I guess yeah. there's all sorts of other components that you would have in in a platform that you can use those primitives to build here's yeah. the thing yeah and so so you know related to that uh so you know you got you got you got the cloud native 12 to 16 factors of doing software right the this sort of cloud native way of developing software and like is cloud native software like based on the constraints of containers and kubernetes things or is cont- are containers built around that? Like, what's the what's the chicken and the egg issue uh, between 12, those two things?
1: Twelve factors are really built around the constraints of a PaaS like platform. Um, I believe they originally came out of Heroku, uh, and having a similar PaaS, obviously, we like them. Um, the interesting thing with Kubernetes is you can start to break some of those factors, right? Because Kubernetes is a more feature-packed platform than uh, PCF or Heroku. Heroku is is an opinionated platform versus Kubernetes being an unopinionated platform. So basically, when we are building the platform on top of the platform, we're adding our own opinions to that platform. uh, And those opinions don't necessarily mean all 12 of the factors. So with Kubernetes, you can add persistent volumes. So backing services become less of a concern. Um, You can do uh, configuration by a number of different ways. So doing your configuration as environment variables, Mm. you can handle logging in different ways. So doing your logging only to stand it out becomes a, a potentially optional thing. So the 12 factors, like they're always good practice. But they're not as important on Kubernetes as they are on a PaaS-like uh, uh, system. Uh, and that gives you the added benefit of, if you really want to, you can run any old garbage pretty successfully on Kubernetes. Mm. Right? So uh, any, any legacy app, if it, if it runs on Linux or can be forced to run under Wine um, or something similar like that, you can run in Kubernetes. Um, with a little bit of work, uh, and run them quite successfully, and so it's also becoming a place where you can look at running your legacy applications as well as your fancy new cloud uh, native applications. So, so really, at at at, with the
0: unopinionatedness or openness, you're not. You can basically do whatever application model you want, for better or worse. Right? Like, there's not. Um, it might be best to do things in a cloud-native way because it's more scalable and, and you can take advantage of all the, all the fun stuff of cloud things. But really, like uh, you could do
1: whatever, as you're saying, yeah, with refuse. It's, it's a kitchen drawer filled to the brim with very sharp knives. And you can grab any of those knives out of the drawer that you want. Um, just be careful because they're pointing in different ways and you'll cut your hand off.
0: Mm. Now how many knives do you think you actually need in your kitchen drawer? Some people say like two, right? but do you think the what how how what do you think the bare minimum is
1: yeah i I mean I like knives, so I have a lot, <laughs> but really two, maybe three maybe
0: like a paring uh, knife and a chef knife right and i guess if i guess if friend, you make a friend lot friend. of oh yeah, that's true if you make a lot of bone broth, maybe a cleaver
2: and <laughs> one for shaving with maybe paul's pretty pretty manly that's right. That's right. <laughs> No, I, I, I use the axe to shave.
0: That's true. <laughs> I'm going to carve up these parsnips and then shave with the same knife.
1: Yeah. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. If you look at like Chinese cleavers, for example, they have like a lot of them just use cleavers, right? And they have like the, the vegetable cleaver and the meat cleaver. Uh, and so they've figured out a way to effectively have the same knife be multi-purpose. And it just depends on the, the thickness and the, uh, the, the angle of the blade based on what what um so it's always good like i watch a lot of uh sechuan chefs on youtube and they're always using these big cleavers that we uh would think of for chopping bones to like do very very fine knife work on vegetables and stuff mint some garlic hmm. right hmm. yes how do we get under knives what happened oh there? oh it, it was <laughs>
0: uh you, you cu- there was a metaphor that kubernetes is like a, a kitchen drawer full of sharp knives
1: And uh, Uh, you
0: you can, you can do whatever you can, you can shave mince garlic, chop bones in half, whatever style you want to do. You can, uh, you, you can apply it to there. So, so what, uh, uh, like, so if we were, if we were to look forward as I like to do towards the end of a discussion, uh, like what, uh, like, like what are the big, let's say, let's say two to three things that the Kubernetes community is trying to like sort out now, like what, uh, like, is, is, is it like multi-cluster management or is it sort of like, um, I don't know, instead of YAML, we should use XML or like what, what, are, what are the
1: big like issues that, that people
0: are dealing with?
1: Yeah, I think multi-cluster management is definitely a thing. And that that's from both the like the operation side of managing Kubernetes itself, but also for I have my app, I need to deploy it to multiple regions, to multiple clusters. What does that look like? Uh, And so there's been various federation efforts with Kubernetes um, with varying levels of success. And by varying, I think I mean all of them were unsuccessful. Um, I'm not sure where the current state of that is, um, but there's been a couple of attempts that haven't really gone anywhere. I think a lot of us are now starting to really think about uh, good ways to handle the the build and storage of images. So Mm. like stepping stepping back from Kubernetes and saying it's time to add some uh, somewhat opinionated pieces to Kubernetes around uh, building and sharing those images. Uh, so I think if you talk to any vendor that sells Kubernetes, they'll probably tell you that they have a, a thing in the pipeline to handle those things.
0: And that, that, that that's sort of like, it seems like one of the major connections between developers and Kubernetes stuff is like the image registry essentially,
2: right? I mean, even yesterday, right, we shipped Spring Boot, two, three, one that with one kind of build command will actually generate a build packs produced container. I tweeted about it last night and people people liked it because it's super easy. Even a dumb person like me can add one command and immediately I have a Docker image that's per- packaged up correctly, right? So you're not guessing on which base image to use. You're not guessing on how to stack it all up. Nope, I'm just a dev. I just build and I happen to get a container in my registry. That's really nice to link the worlds.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, that absolutely is. Um, and I think the good thing about that is it's, it also makes it very easy to do such thing in a CI system because obviously in in the real world, you're not actually building an image on your laptop and sending it to a registry and then running it in production, right? You have hopefully a CI system that is doing that. So you can sort of have some traceability of where the image came from and how it was built and keep some sort of build bill of materials and stuff. So so then maybe the, the last question,
0: because cause I th- I think what, where we've ended up you know along with meat cleavers things like that is uh there's sort of this picture of like so kubernetes basically like takes your containers and like as as you're saying it's an ias for that layer right it, it like places them it places them on on computers and uh make sure that you have proper network access with, between things and then you also need some storage and boom there you go and there's a bunch of other stuff in there right but that's sort of the end goal now then as we were sort of just getting into like, but then you need to like actually deploy software to it. So you need to develop the software and that needs to coordinate and you got to do this. uh, You got to have some registries, all these things like, and you know, what do you, especially based on your experience in the OpenStack world, like, like what do you think is a good way to like layer on these upper layers of things? Right? Like, like, is it good for the Kubernetes community to like have an opinion about that or or to sort of like let other people
1: handle that? Like how, what, how do you like to do that kind of stuff historically? I I think it makes sense to let other people handle that, let it sort of settle itself down and then look at what the, the leading options are. Um, Hmm. I feel like if you try and force opinions on the people um, and they don't like those opinions, they're more likely to just throw away your entire body of work than they are to mm. use the eighty percent that works for them, right? So they have a um, baby in a bathwater problem, exactly. So for better or worse, you are better off focusing focusing at the things where you can have um, unopinionated implementations of them um, with easy ways to build the opinionated things on top. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Wait, what's the
0: you want to have? Uh, you want to have the uh, common wisdom. Like it, like if, if everyone shares it, it's not really an opinion. It's just sort of like the, uh, the common wisdom of it.
1: Yeah. And you know, it's often not the ideal thing. It's often not the best implementation, but you know, you can be chasing the perfect implementation forever and never actually run any software or you can figure out, you can be pragmatic, figure out what works and then build upon that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that make that makes sense. That like in the overall community of users and people who do it, and vendors and everything, like it's good to uh, have a multiplicity of things you're trying to do it at, at, at the layer that isn't settled yet, and kind of uh, yeah. yeah, and not not even not even the it's it's nuancedly inappropriately phrased to say let the best one win, but it's more like let the one that everyone wants to use win, <laughs> right? Which you know is. Seems like uh, much better. Well, great. Well, uh, if people want to uh, uh, keep up with you in a non-sneaky way, see what you're up to. What what would you point them to?
1: Uh, So they can find me on Twitter at P Chikovsky. I have a very hard to pronounce name uh, and a very hard to spell name, so that uh, we can put it in the in the show notes how to spell my name. And that's right. Uh, Unfortunately, all the short, easy to spell ways of saying my name were already taken by other people uh, on Twitter. So I'm stuck with a hard to spell name. Uh, Otherwise I can be found all over the place at conferences. Uh, I'll be at Bosdom and config management camp in Belgium in like a week's time. Yeah, that's soon. Uh, Yeah, that's soon. And then I believe we're starting to plan out our spring one tour events for this year. And we have, Maybe Seattle coming up in March. That's right. I think March 9th Uh, or 10th or something like that. uh, And I believe I'll actually be giving a like three and a bit hour Kubernetes workshop where I will be giving everyone access to a cluster and teaching them uh, piece by piece how to actually deploy and run applications on Kubernetes.
0: Oh, that'll be exciting.
1: That should be fun. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think I'm also giving a workshop, so I will not be able to attend. Mm. And and by I think I am, so I need to figure that out. Put together, make sure I have solid content. Yes. That's yes. that's always key. Well, all right. Well, as as always, this has been uh well, it's still pivotal conversations because we haven't re- renamed it, but just so the audience knows, I think I think what I'm thinking of, me and me and Dormain, Dormain and I, is uh I think we're going to call it Tanzu talk just because I think like we were discussing it. And I think, I think that title, especially because talk, it kind of matches the tone that both of us have of, on this whole podcast, which is, you know, slightly goofy, but helpful. And it's kind of like, remember, uh, UHF with Weird Al? Mm-hmm. It was that show uh, Town Talk. So yep, it's, yep. we may not, we may not have, uh, finding a marble in oatmeal or, you know, red snapper or anything like that, but we'll try to have it be as, as, as entertaining. And uh, save the channel. Will you have ads for uh, spatula city? (laughs) That's right. Nothing says I love you more than a spatula. (laughs) I, you know, speaking of the kitchen drawer, I, every time I grab a spatula, I think that's, I think that those exact words, spatula city. Mm. Uh, Well, with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. What's the rule with two vowels are together that like one of them silences the other or something? Or am I remembering that incorrectly? Isn't there some rules as far as how you pronounce things when two vowels appear with each other? No.
2: Hmm. Mm, no, there's, yeah, awkward silence there.
0: Yeah. You never know that I spend most of my time writing for a living. Yeah, the only two I
1: mean, vowels rule I know is the uh, I before E unless it is preceded by C. Mm, by the that's exception
2: right. of Lieber and Way, right? Isn't that the, the thing?
1: And yeah. total economic impact.
2: Right. Yes. That's yeah. The, okay. Third option. Anyhow.
1: Mm-hmm.